This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome back our returning celebrity guest scorer and co-host of the Best Picture cast, Kieran B. Dana and Tom, I'm happy to be back, back in the arena here at, uh, at the GMO podcast. Very, uh, very excited to talk about, about this one that I got a long enough history with here. So let's get right into it. Tonight, for our 167th episode, we discuss the 2003 romantic drama Lost in Translation for its 20th anniversary, written and directed by Sofia Coppola, starring Bill Murray as Bob Harris, Scarlett Johansson as Charlotte, Giovanni Ribisi as John, Anna Ferris as Kelly, I'm going to probably butcher this, but uh, Fumahiro Hayashi as Charlie, and Catherine Lambert as the jazz singer. Recognition for this movie? Lost in Translation was wide released on September 12, 2003. It received widespread critical acclaim, particularly for Murray's performance and for Coppola's direction and screenplay. Minor criticism was given to the film's depiction of Japan and the Japanese. At the 76th Academy Awards, Lost in Translation won Coppola the Best Original Screenplay, and the film was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Director for Coppola, and Best Actor for Bill Murray. The film would garner roughly $44.5 million on a budget of $4 million, and currently Lost in Translation holds a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, a 91 score on Metacritic, and a 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So Dad, we will start this one as we do every week. What is your relationship to this movie? This is one that uh, I wanted to see, um, and we ended up renting it on VHS and watching it. And about a quarter of the way through, your mother said, what is this? It's terrible. I hate this. Well, then I'll just finish it by myself. No, I'll sit through it, but I don't like it. That seems to be a recurring theme of this season's movies, is movies mom can't stand. Well, she didn't understand it at all, and it's it spoke to me right off the bat because I understood it. It's it's being alone in a large crowd of people. It's you have that just complete feeling of isolation with uh, with all these people around who are not. You know, I mean, you're not isolated, but you are. So this is my first time with the film, and I strategically put this on the list because I wanted to see the film and I needed an excuse to do so. I have to push myself into certain films sometimes. But Karen, what about you? So I'm in I'm in my first year away from for college when this comes out. I've always been a, a movie fan since I was a little kid, but this is the part of my life where I'm really starting to learn and understand film and and be pushed into it by fellow people you meet in college and whatnot. And I think one of the earliest movies I remember watching as a little kid is Ghostbusters. And Ghostbusters was just on 
all the time when I was little. Um, I think if I can remember like the earliest scene ever seen, ever viewing when I'm a, a little kid, it's it's Bill Murray with the buzzer and the cards and the you know the guy guessing a couple wavy lines and him going sorry and but and you know getting it right and still buzzing him. So Bill Murray has kind of always been such a part of of my my viewership and my uh, movie fandom. So when this movie comes out. I'm like, oh wow, Bill Murray's in a movie that he's up for an Oscar for. This is this is amazing. And I watch it and it's it's kind of the first time I ever experienced a movie and learned that a movie doesn't really have to necessarily have anything going on in it. You know, there doesn't have to be a plot. There doesn't have to be a twist and turn. Sometimes it can just be people existing and that's as I've grown older, that's the kind of movie that I've I've learned to learn to love, and I'm always a sucker for a sad movie. And this movie and two other movies that came out a little bit afterward, I kind of always consider my uh, trilogy of sadness. And it would be this uh, Sideways and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which are another two of my uh, all time favorites. So this time period in my life, I'm really kind of getting into this type of film. And, and those three movies just really kind of sucked me in and swept me away. Talking to a few of my friends this week, it was notable that this was one of the movies they highlighted as being kind of one of those first, oh, these are smart movies now, or these are the first kind of adult movies of our generation. I'll, I'll kind of lump you in, even though you're a couple of years older than me, but kind of that, that wave of the first ones you remember when you get out of the Disney animation stuff and Pixar and the stuff that you do when you're a kid, the preteen movies even this is kind of a smarter, more elevated movie. And so I do think it has some resonance to that, particularly because I believe a lot of people also had the same entrance point you did with Bill Murray. I know it was notable at the time, oh, Bill Murray's nominated for an Oscar. That was a big deal. I think we could have a debate at some point whether or not this is his best role. I think it would be at least in the conversation because I think it's his only Oscar nomination, if I remember correctly. But I do also give a little bit of credence to Groundhog Day, which I think is criminally underrated. And we did on the show a couple of years back. Absolutely. So then what is this movie about? Dad, you've kind of already talked about it a little bit. It's it's about isolation and feeling alone and feeling lost to some extent because you just miss the connection. I mean, what... What really struck me is how I didn't realize how much I needed to have conversations and connections and relations with people until the pandemic, and I couldn't. I I just gravitate towards it now. And so this, this film actually, I think, was more impactful for me the second time or this time around watching it than it was the first time I saw it. You know, I, I've been in those situations in a crowded bar or traveling on the road and I'm sitting by myself. I try to strike up conversations with people. Uh, nothing happens. And I'm just sitting there kind of looking at my drink or whatever's on the television above the bar and feeling very alone, wondering how it got to be to that point. It strikes me as interesting, or you've at least piqued my interest, Karen, by describing this as a sad movie. I didn't actually feel that sad for the movie. I know that it has kind of a bittersweet ending in that these two people are forced to eventually 
leave each other. Except that they found some type of belonging in a, a strange place. And in trying to explain the movie, I think there's both the physical world and then there's the metaphorical world as to how this movie is even borne out in the title, Lost in Translation. Obviously, you're in a different country, and that's a fairly common idiom of, you know, how, especially when we take the one of the opening scenes with the filming of the commercial and the long paragraph that the director's giving, I, I busted a gut. I, I seriously did watching that scene for the first time. And the direction is like one line in the translation. Just fantastic scene. And yes, we'll, we'll get to whether that scene is poorly crafted or ill classic or whatever, but uh, it still is pretty funny as far as I feel. Just because I think this is filmed from the perspective of Americans, not necessarily projecting our experiences of what we think the Japanese are or what Japanese culture would be, but how lost we might feel in something that is probably one of the most foreign cultures to us as, as far as like to like. I think Americans have maybe a little bit of camaraderie or wouldn't feel as out of place in a European country or even South America or places that we have at least some connective tissue. And I don't think that for the broad swath of Americans, especially like middle America, they're not going to have that same cultural connection with a lot of Japanese culture that just seems so foreign and distant comparatively. That being said, the metaphorical is there. And I was struggling to figure out exactly how to communicate that. And I found the tagline for the movie, which I thought was more fitting in five words than anything I could have written. Everyone wants to be found. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's well said. You know, in terms of what I think it's about, and I think there are a lot of different ways you can view this movie. You can really get into the cultural aspects of it and the geographical aspects of it. Uh, I, I kind of lend to, to more uh, the humanity of it and and the individualism of it. And the little thing I wrote down just to say what I, what I think the movie's about, uh, I think it's a film about loneliness and emotional and intellectual isolation, the curse of the busy brain. So I'm kind of on in line with uh, with Dana there in that, and we have two main characters here who who find themselves in a stage of their life, uh, one in the very early parts of of marriage, and one in in the much much later. And two years for Scarlett Johansson's character Charlotte, and 25, I believe, for uh, Bill Murray's character Bob. And they're both they're both stuck, and they're both inside their heads. They're trying to assimilate with society and with uh, culture. And I think that there's an escapism to, to Japan or to Tokyo that they feel like their problems will, will more or less be hashed out or solved here. And really uh, it seems that they're running into the same obstacles on their vacation here that they were, must be going on with them at home. And until they find each other and connect with each other, they're, they're really unable to, to process or solve anything. And then of course we have them, leaving each other at the end. You know, when I when I say it's a sad movie, it's not to say that it's sad minute one to minute, you know, 120 or just, just short of two hours, because there is a lot of happiness in humanity within this movie. There are some smiles. There are some laughs. There are some connections and some 
some mild resolutions, but these people have a lot of questions to answer for themselves. And this this journey is going to continue for them, and there are going to be a lot of very sad days ahead of them. And this isn't your your Disney happy movie ending or or uh, first, second, third act type of deal. There's a lot of there's a lot to process here with these two people and everything that they must endure. Oh, certainly, I'm not going to ignore that aspect of the film. I just felt that even despite them having to separate that there's still hope for both of them in their situations. And to me, that's what says this isn't necessarily as bleak as we've had other films be. Oh, I would agree with that. Yeah. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sum this up as a bleak movie. I certainly wouldn't. Um, I think it's a movie that just, that you go, you go through periods of sadness while you're watching it. You don't necessarily end sad. Well, I know you mentioned European, I mean, the first time I went to Europe well, was with your mother in 1994. We went to Germany and Switzerland to visit her host family and such. And in 1994, English was not quite as prevalent in Germany as it became, where everybody seemed to speak English. And so I spent three weeks with the only communication I had was to turn to your mother and say, what did he say? Or what did she say? And half the time she would start responding to me in German. And I'd go, no, 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 no. English. Oh, oh, sorry. And then she would, because, you know, I couldn't read the signs. I couldn't talk to anybody. And I felt completely alone and isolated there. I had basically only your mother to communicate with. It changed dramatically uh, the 10 years, uh, 11 years later that we went where almost everybody spoke English and you could go to the, to a convenience store and they would ask you if you were an American and speak to you in English that was near perfect and everybody seemed to. So it changed dramatically, but having experienced the first time around, I remember walking off the plane and going, Oh my God, I can read a sign now. One of the interesting aspects that I got out of this is that you've always had the description, Dad, in describing this film as your relationship partly due to connecting with Bill Murray's character. And oddly enough, I actually found the opposite to be true for me. I related more to Charlotte's character. Maybe it's because of at the point in my life that I, I've been, and I don't know if I, I feel necessarily stuck, although I feel maybe stuck in a cycle of choices that I keep having to make over and over and over again and not sure where that's supposed to eventually end up, that I'm not necessarily moving the ball down the field in any any variety. But I guess I wonder, I'm pretty sure that you identified a lot more with Bob, Dad, but Kieran, do you see yourself more in the, the Charlotte point of life where you're not sure what to do with your future and you're kind of at this beginning, but you have all these questions that feel unanswered? Or do you feel more like Bob where you're getting to a, an older point of your life and you're not sure where you've been and what's left of it? Yeah, it, it's funny because I think I'm somewhere in the middle here uh, with this where um, I'm connecting with both characters. And when I was younger, I certainly connected more with the Charlotte character. Uh, I'm I'm the uh, exact age of 
Scarlett Johansson. So, uh, of course, when I saw this when I was in college, I was, you know, head over heels uh, with her and her, her performance in this. And that was kind of the her portion of the storyline was one of the ones I was more into, despite loving Bill Murray. But yeah, as you get older, you you get a bit, you know, you get a bit jaded in some areas of life and, and you can feel the exhaustion of Bill Murray. And um, I, I just I love the scene where the two uh, the two Americans kind of recognize him and you know, oh, you drove your own car in that movie. And he's like, yeah, yeah. What are you doing? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, and it's just, it just, even if I can't imagine what these celebrities go through on a regular basis, but I can even just, when someone recognizes you and you just don't want to talk to them and you're like, oh, geez, you know, let me, let me check, please. You know, and, and he walks out of there. But, you know, I, I think that this movie makes an interesting connection with age, you know, where it's not, it doesn't just have to be the young person figuring things out and the uh, the the older guy who's kind of just doesn't know what he has left or where he has to go. I think that they're they're making a nice little by connecting those two and having an emotional connection between those two. I I think that Sofia Coppola is making a bit of a statement of whatever age you are, these sorts of questions and these sorts of problems are things you're going to be confronted with. So um, I I do find myself kind of in the middle between both of them. I mean, for me, it it's been Bob because. I mean, when I was five years old, I said I wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> I became a lawyer. So I never felt like I was completely at a loss. I always had this focus and went through it. Unfortunately, I think back looking at it, I was so focused at times, I missed the connections. I missed having the large group of friends that I kept for life from college. And I missed, you know, a lot of those early relationships professionally because I was so focused on either working or having a family and spending time with them, and I had no other relationship. Being a middle-aged man and feeling kind of alone in the world was something that I definitely related to much more. But I think ultimately, that's really what makes a good movie, is that you can create a situation where large groups of people can see something completely different in the characters and what's transpiring within the movie. I mean, it's real easy for the director or screenwriter to just tell you what you should be thinking and feeling. It's quite another to play it in such a broad brush, almost abstract or impressionist view that each person can glean something different out of it. And I think that's the sign of true art in this form. But also, I will say, it's been surprising to me. It's been a couple of days since we finished the film. I liked it when we finished it, but I think I've grown in an appreciation for it the more time I've sat with it. And so it's interesting to try and get the, the perspectives that we're going to have kind of moving through the rest of this show. But let's get a little bit more background on the movie here. Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? Yes. Lost in Translation, directed by Sofia Coppola, is a bittersweet tale of isolation and connection set amidst the bustling streets of Tokyo. This delicately crafted film captures the essence of cultural displacement, exploring the intimate journey of two lost souls who find solace in each other's company. Bob Harris, Bill Murray, an aging American movie star, arrives in Tokyo to film a whiskey commercial, grappling with a midlife crisis and a deteriorating marriage. 
he finds himself caught in a whirlwind of unfamiliarity and a profound sense of alienation as the language, customs, and vibrant chaos of the city overwhelm him. Charlotte Scarlett Johansson, a young college graduate accompanying her photographer husband, is similarly adrift in Tokyo. Burdened with an unsatisfying relationship and a sense of existential ennui, she roams the city's neon-lit streets searching for meaning and connection. Lost in Translation is a contemplative exploration of the human experience, delving into the themes of loneliness, existential crisis, and the universal need for human connection. With its dreamlike atmosphere, remarkable performances, and a heartfelt script, the film invites audiences to reflect on their own lives, prompting questions about the nature of identity, love, the search for meaning in a world that often feels overwhelming and impenetrable. Thank you. Did you know? Sofia Coppola wrote the lead role specifically for Bill Murray, and later said that if Murray turned it down, she wouldn't have done the movie. Did you know? Sofia Coppola wasn't sure if Bill Murray was actually going to show up for the film. Murray works without a management, and according to Coppola, he had only given her a verbal confirmation. While production was being set up in Tokyo with no sign of him, she started to get nervous, but was assured by fellow director Wes Anderson, who had directed Murray in both Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums, that Murray was a man of his word. It was indeed when Murray landed in Tokyo one week before filming that his participation was ensured. Did you know? The opening shot of Scarlett Johansson is actually influenced by a painting by John Cassers, whose painting shows up later in the hotel. Johansson was reportedly nervous about appearing in her underpants, so to ease her down, Sofia Coppola did the first take herself while wearing the same underpants. And with that, we'll take our first break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for its 70th anniversary, we are discussing the caper comedy, The Pink Panther, from 1963. Written and directed by Blake Edwards, co-written with Maurice Richelin, music by Henry Mancini, starring Peter Sellers, David Niven, and Robert Wagner. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. So that brings us to best performance. Dad, who do you have down? Um, I have Bill Murray. It was Bill Murray being feisty and obnoxious and snide and everything that we come to expect of him in doing it within the confines of a character that you both were repulsed by at times and also empathetic with at others. I had him down also as my best performance, but to me, this is the version of Groundhog Day if he doesn't end up like solving his problems. Like if he ages another 10 or 15 years and has no self-reflection on who he is and he just becomes kind of a lost, vulnerable individual. It's very similar in the character styles, although this is much less intentionally comedic. I think there's obviously the acerbic wit that's there, and I do think that he is perfect to play this role for the moments of levity that we do get, because I don't know how many other actors could generate the laughs that are there and make them believable. 
But at the same time, it's probably his deepest, most layered version of whatever he needs to to be, because even while we enjoy Groundhog Day, that character is mostly on the surface in order to get the most out of that what you need to in any one scene. Whether he wants to kill himself, whether he's trying to solve himself, whether he's going through the denial of whatever's happening to him in this cycle of things, everything seemingly is on the surface and is very visually shown to you by Ramus's direction. Here, you don't see a lot of what his thought pattern is, but you can see it kind of on his face. And by that methodology, it's just a much deeper role that you can really find a lot of different things in. And so I, I felt that because the role was written specifically for him, maybe there's a natural aid to it as him being made for this one thing. But at the same time, I'm not going to penalize him for it. I thought he did the best job in the movie. Yeah, I think there's a there's a lack of vulnerability to the character in Groundhog Day that that this movie has, and in, in part by their different types of movies. You know, Groundhog Day's a, a little more about the entertainment and and more of a, a family type affair. Not that it's a family movie, but and and this is a you know this is a, a very specific type of movie and a very specific type of role. So it lends toward that vulnerability and that you know Oscar-y type performance. Uh, they're both wonderful performances, but I think you nailed it on the head with uh, the Groundhog Day performances is that he was really just presenting what his character was intended to present and didn't need to tap into that next layer. That being said, I, for me, my my uh, best performance is Sofia Coppola. This time around with this movie, I I really it really clicked with me how personal this tale is and how much of Charlotte's movie this really is. And you know, in doing the research afterwards and learning that this is a, there is a bit of, of, um, Sophia Coppola telling her own story and her own personal experiences that it makes some sense after the fact. But I mean, as a writer and director in this one, to me, she, she really wonderfully puts this thing together and tells a different type of narrative uh, that, uh, steers away from plot and away from a lot of the, the tropes and expectations that we have as a viewer and really leans into, not just her characters, but her actors and lets them play around with the script and lets them play around with, with the, the inner layers of the character. So uh, for me, I'm going to go with the, the writer, director, producer, Sofia Coppola. She's my best secondary. I think what she's crafted here is a beautiful, quiet movie that probably needs multiple returns to, to probably glean what I feel I would need to out of it. There is a somberness, there's a sobriety to the movie, there's hope, there's sadness. I mean, it's a mixture of emotions all tied into one thing, but I do think it ventures on touching the soul, even if just briefly. And how many movies do you really feel that way? And it, it almost feels like a universal thing, save for my mother, of course, to anybody who's seen the film. Well, I went with Sofia Coppola as my secondary to it. I, I had a decision to make, and I had to stop and think about it. Obviously, the script and the direction are very good, but the question I have is, is, would they still be as good, or would this film still be as good if you put, you know, instead of Bill Murray 
Oh, let's see, 2003. If you stuck Jason Bateman in that role. <laughs> okay. Well, I think it's a much different thing because we're thinking of Jason Bateman like now as opposed to 20 years ago when he was on Arrested Development. Yeah. Or, and I'm just trying to think of anybody else that could have done that role. Bill Paxton. Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis. Okay. Ooh, Put them in there. Would would the would the film have been as good? And I think that I think you have a harder time the same impact with the film with somebody other than Murray, which is why I went with him first as opposed to second. And I think it's agreed upon by Coppola that the movie wouldn't be the same if he wasn't in it. So I think if you're just taking it on that, I'll accept that ranking list. Although it's you have three main people, and I'm going to highlight all of them, if that gives away where I'm going to go with most uh, charismatic. But let's get to your best secondary, Kieran. Who did you have? Yeah, my uh, best secondary is tied in with my uh, with my best performance, and that's going to be Scarlett Johansson as a as a rookie coming into this thing and really encapsulating the vision that Sofia Coppola had for this. It really kind of, man, it just aggravates me that that the Academy didn't put her up for an Oscar this year. I'm not saying she should have beat Hilary Swank for for that uh, for that award. Uh, Million Dollar Baby is another favorite of mine, but the, it, it is such a wonderful performance to me. It's not a perfect performance because it's it's you know there's a lot of challenges here with it, but I, I really think she's so charming. She's so um, just uh, adorable. She sucks you in. And um, really makes you feel for the character and the decisions that she's make made, but more importantly, the decisions that she has to make moving forward. And I, I, I was this time around was just in love with the performance, and I thought she crushed it. So I, I had to, I had to shout her out as secondary here. Well, depending on whether you put her in best supporting or in best actress, she would have actually been against Charlize Theron for Monster or Renee Zellweger for Cold Mountain that year. The year after is the million dollar baby year. This oh, okay. is the okay, so uh, Lord that. of the Rings finally getting its crown year. Gotcha. You know what? It's the it's the Mystic River year, not the million dollar baby year. That's Correct. what I got confused Correct. with there. Okay. Yeah. So he went up against against Penn uh in Mystic River. That's what that's the confusion. Okay. And what are you gonna do there? I mean Yeah. And this doesn't beat Charlie Theron either, anyway. But I, I think this would be a lead. This is would be a lead in my opinion and not a supporting. They could have gamed it with the supporting, game the system a little bit, but I could have possibly stomached putting her over Zellweger for Colt Mountain, though, if you put it in supporting. And there's been enough, let's say, category theft over the years that I, I wouldn't have had too much problem with that, especially since Zellweger got her best actors for a movie I didn't think was her best work, nor was a very good movie. Well, Zellweger screws her over many years later in 2019 when she wins that uh, award for Judy when that should have gone to Scarlett Johansson for her incredible performance in Marriage Story. That, that, that's an Oscar decision that just blows my mind. And it was like a across the precursor sweep, too, which is just crazy to me because I think Scarlett Johansson was just gangbusters in a marriage story. Well, not to mention, I thought she was fantastic the same year in Jojo Rabbit, too. Yes. Yeah. Very underrated film. As far as most charismatic, I agree with you as far as your comments on ScarJo, it doesn't take a lot of prompting for me to remember the younger Scarlett Johansson that's 
only a few years older than me as I'm kind of going through high school, the blonde version of her before kind of all the Marvel Cinematic Universe took over and everything that was there. And that was a different fondness for a, a different character. But the younger one that's involved in all the romantic comedies and stuff and the one that kind of tears at my heartstrings a little bit with one of my early celebrity crushes. She is bountiful in charisma in this movie. I'm not sure how she ends up with Giovanni Ribisi. <laughs> I mean, she's what, a Yale graduate who's smarter than everybody in the room hanging out with a Hollywood celebrity photographer. What sense does that make? Oh, and, and just the, the second you meet Rabisi in this, you're just like, oh, God, this dipshit. Like, he's just instantly, you know, you can see how maybe she ended up in this situation. She probably was charmed by him two years ago with the whole uh, with his whole plight and all that. But you could see by now she's just looking for some human connection and there's not much coming from, uh, from Rabisi in his green pants. Well, it's either him or any of the people that he hangs out with, like Anna Ferris's character. Oh, Wow. <laughs> was Anna Faris not tailor-made for that role? I mean, that is oh. just that is just Anna, Anna Faris built to play that role. I swear she got the role in Just Friends just from playing this. Oh, I, I bet. Oh, I, I turned to you and said, does she ever play anything other than this? Because it's like she's the same character in every film. But this is the most believable version of that. Every other time that she's played it, it's so over-the-top in your face loud and abrasive and everything else. This at least felt like somebody you could meet out in the wild. That was a celebrity, but would say the dumbest stuff, you know, somebody that was kind of the ilk at the time of like a Jessica Simpson. Yeah. The rumors uh, that it, that she was um, so that those two characters, Spike Jones, I guess was Sophia Coppola's ex husband. So Ribisi is, maybe modeled after him. And there's rumors that the Anna Faris character was was modeled after Cameron Diaz, uh, who oh, I guess the two okay. worked together with in uh, being uh, being John Malkovich, I, I think is if if that's the right movie, I'm getting that right. But uh, rumors about it. Sofia Coppola denies it, but I could see the I could see it matching up. Yes, we all write from life experience and uh, <laughs> being Hollywood royalty, I'm sure uh, has its benefits of all the rumors and tie-ins that it could be. Yes. Dan, who is your most charismatic? ScarJo. I mean, when I saw her in this, I was ready to see her in some meatier, more challenging roles. And she's done a few, as you mentioned, but I would love to see her in, in films that become more and more challenging to her. I think, I know that it's money and prestige and it allows you to do stuff but getting stuck in some of these marvel movies it takes a lot of time energy and effort and i mean in 20 years are you going to be remembered for being in a marvel movie or not i guess yes you likely will be uh, not by us, right. Dana. Not by us. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I'm i'm starting to question that just by the fact that Marvel movies are starting to uh, not draw at the theater. Okay, who played Superman? Huh? Don't you know just about everybody who played Superman, Batman, or Spider-Man? I mean, these are cultural movies in time, and they're bigger characters. 
And yes, she is not like one of the main Avengers. She's not a Chris, but it's not like people forget who she is because she was in a Marvel movie. Okay, it's not what I meant. I just meant sometimes... <sighs> she's not in them anymore, and she's now got her kids. So I wonder if she's taking more of a break off from things to kind of be a mother for a little bit and what her potential comeback, if she decides to have one would be that to me is a little bit more interesting now that her character is expired. Spoiler alert for a Marvel film in case anybody who is listening to this has an overlap with the Marvel universe, but yes, her character dies. So there you go. Yeah. She actually, she actually was in town uh, this past weekend here on Long Island. Uh, I, I run a bar that's right next to a somewhat, large venue and her husband Colin Jost had a uh, had a uh, a show and she was there you know kind of with sunglasses and and had and uh in inconspicuous looking but was in town and it was like all the whispers scar Joe's in town scar Joe's in town so she's certainly a celebrity you know she's not uh I don't know that there'd be the same buzz if Anna Faris was walking around but uh there there yeah. might be you know well especially since she decided to untether herself from one of the Chris's <laughs> Well, and I find it interesting that ScarJo is a twin and her sister is a teacher in the Minneapolis school district. That I did not know. Very cool. So, I mean, can you imagine being uh, a student and having her sister as your teacher and looking at her every day and going, this is almost surreal. Yeah. Well, let's just say Hot for Teacher would be a song that would be on replay. (laughs) (laughs) 1,000%. Charismatic for me is Bill Murray. Um, I mean, listen, he's he's Bill F and Murray. You know, um, this movie's kind of a wonderful hand-eye trick where Sofia Coppola's telling her personal tale and kind of crafting that Scarlett Johansson character, but has Bill Murray out here for everyone to see, and and that's where all the eyes go to to Bill Murray. So she's able to tell that uh, Charlotte tale without it being too self-indulgent and and too much of a distraction. So Bill Murray is just, he's wonderful in this. You guys said it before perfectly when you were going on your best performance. This movie does not work without him. Uh, he's an essential piece to this thing. And he's kind of what makes this movie what it is. And it's with his charisma and with his his entity. So most charismatic for me was Bill Murray. Uh, yeah, I can see that. I, But I mean, I, the story that I always list or point out is to Bill Murray and who he really is personality-wise. <laughs> He is renowned for going up to people on the streets if he's in Chicago or New York or Los Angeles and coming up behind him, putting their his hands over their eyes and going, guess who? And when he <laughs> says it's Bill Murray, and he walks away and says, no one is going to believe you. It just yes, walks down yes, the street. Classic. So. Best scene then. I have a few down here. Bob's Arrival. Suntory time, Midnight Drink, which is the first bar scene where the two of them kind of meet but don't introduce themselves, Photo Shoot, Meeting Kelly, which is the character of Anna Ferris, Partying in Tokyo, Karaoke, The Marriage and Life Conversation. I wasn't sure what exactly to call it. It's the most contemplative version of the two of them where they kind of really. Yeah. Last elevator ride and then goodbye. Are there any you'd like to highlight that I missed? Because I, I think there are a lot of small scenes in this movie for only being 90 minutes. 
You mentioned the, the karaoke? Yes. Yes, yeah. I think you got them all. Okay. Out of these, what do you guys think is the best scene? I'll go first. Uh, the, the the scene that we were just discussing, the contemplative scene of them in bed, if we're, if we're going nuts and bolts, the best scene that kind of brings the characters to light and, and really gets the, gets the wheels turning. Um, for me, there's, um, oh man, just wonderful performances in that scene. The, this movie does a, a, a creative job of kind of dancing around sexuality. You know, it, it doesn't have the two of them really connect sexually, which could have been too big of a distraction in this considering the age gap. But there's just that little touch of the foot there at the end, which is enough to really kind of bring the thing full circle. So I, I thought nuts and bolts, that was the best scene of the film. That's a, a great scene. And I, in fact, I, one of the reasons why I think that the scene with sleeping with the uh, jazz singer occurs is to deflect any sexual tension because it's obvious that he... You know, if he really wanted to have sex with ScarJo in this film, he would have, because it was so obvious that he didn't take much for him to fall in bed with somebody else. And I think that's what kind of, I think that was a vehicle to hyphenate that this is not a sexual relationship. It is an intimate relationship. Mm. But my best scene was the opening scene and especially in contrast to the closing or ending scene. As he's coming in, it's the bright lights, the chaos, and it's it reflects what his what's in his mind, what he's feeling, what he, he you know, everything about his life seems to be gorish and excessive, and he can't seem to get any grasp of what is going around around him. The ending is he's leaving in daylight. And I think that the reflection for both ending the film is that they both realize that they can make other connections. I think at one point they're worried that they're going to be in isolation forever, a bad marriage and a bad marriage, and they're just going to be adrift. And because they were able to make these connections, they were able to have a light at the end of the tunnel type of thing that I know if this fails, I can make other relationships and connections with people. And so that opening scene to me sets the tone of the entire film. And so that's why I picked that as my best because I mean, just the brightness and the, of what was going on and you could see the look on his face as he's looking is almost uh, overwhelming. Well said. I actually had the goodbye scene, not necessarily the final ending, his kind of cab ride there, but just the bittersweet ending between the two of them where there's words unsaid, but there's still controversy around what is actually said in that scene when you have that final moment. And Murray's always referred to it as a conversation between lovers, so he'll never tell. But you get the sense that there's the true longingness and desire to connect and it is still hopeful even in its bittersweet nature and so for me as far as the most affecting scene i felt that one was the perfect cap ending to what the rest of the movie had been about for me 
favorite scene for me it's Suntory time I already mentioned before it's the biggest laugh I got in the film it's true Bill Murray wry wit it's also my most indelible moment as well I'll, I'll couple on that uh, I'm cheating a little bit in in marrying that scene to the photo shoot scene too um, so if I can't do that I'll just talk the photo shoot scene uh, it's just a, it's just a an absolute hoot. Um, it's Bill Murray being Bill Murray in the best way. Uh, they're playing with the uh, the title of the film, Lost in Translation, but the Bond stuff just kills me. So good. Uh, just just great. Roger Moore? You, wait, you want more or, or Roger Moore? No, it's just, just so good. Um, so good. So th- those two scenes to me are just, are, are my, my, I'm smiling ear to ear every time those are on. But he drank martinis. <laughs> My favorite was uh, Charlotte and Bob in the city leading to the karaoke. I mean, I've just seen situations like that where you got nothing going on and you just let things go and you do stuff, crazy stuff that you would never do in a normal situation and and just let things ride through. Creates memories that are hard to disown at some point. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, but it's still, it's kind of, in retrospect, you kind of laugh that you put yourself in certain situations and such. And the fact that having grown up watching Saturday Night Live from the inception and Bill Murray on Saturday Night Live, him singing karaoke was like half of the scenes of Saturday Night Live where he's singing. I still sing happy birthday to the kids like Bill Murray would do on Saturday Night Live and he did in the karaoke which is kind of like over-the-top singing. So to me, that spoke about life experiences and brought back early memories of Bill Murray. Indelible for me is going to be the same. It's the karaoke scene. Uh, Every time I think of this movie, that's where I go. And I think a lot of that is what you said there, Dana, is, is that those... Is this movie about that scene? No, but it, that's how life works is, is you have these little moments of life that create these little memories and you just think about that year or that time and you go back to that room and the, you're singing karaoke and you're off tune and, you know, and someone's got to do this song. And that that scene just sticks with me with this movie. And uh, anyone brings up Lost in Translation, the first place I go is is a karaoke room with, you know, Bill Murray in the inside out shirt and the jacket. And, uh, it's, uh, you, you put it perfectly. So that's indelible for me. Well, mine is the ending scene with their embrace and the kiss and all that. And it's for this reason, which is even people who have relationships and such are looking for a level of intimacy where they can convey their feelings or, be themselves and not feel like they had to put on airs. I mean, when I when I ended up marrying my wife at the, t- at the time, it was the first girl I'd ever spent time with where I ever felt like I was myself and not having to be somebody else. And so to me, that built a level of intimacy that I was reaching out towards. And so this film is not just about relationships. It's about relationships with a level of intimacy that occurs. Old friends can have that level of intimacy where when you're having your absolutely worst period of your life, you can pick up a phone and your friend knows you or understands you well enough that 
he or she will know whether to say anything, to give you advice or not give you advice. They just know you and you have a bond. You feel, have a feeling that somebody cares just at that moment. And that's what the last scene is to me. And every time I thought about this film, I remember that scene going, wow, having that kind of situation where you build that kind of rep relationship over a very short period of time. What a gift. Yeah. And I just, you know, I'm sure this will come up again in, you know, unanswered questions, but it is so essential to me that they don't tell you what is said. It's such a wonderful moment there. And to me, it's, it's just, this movie is made so much greater by that because that should, the answer to that question should be different for every single person who views this movie. Uh, whether you're viewing it in the person who's saying the line or the person who's hearing the line, that has to be in the eye of the beholder and in the eye of the viewer. So I just love that. Well, that looks like a good spot for our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our master greatest movies of all time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com slash Podcast and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movies of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 157 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Jesse Maple also was... Uh... Apparently a maiden name, Jesse Patton, American cinematographer and film director, Will and Twice as Nice. Patton was said to be the first black woman to direct an independent feature-length film in a post-civil rights America. George Riddle, 86, American actor, was in Simon, Arthur, Little Manhattan, and played Kres Beckler on the Onion News Network. Sergio Calderon, 77, Mexican-born American actor, was in the Pirates of the Caribbean at the World's End, was in Men in Black and the Ruins. And so we remember these here with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Let's move to best lines. Charlotte, Let's never come here again, because it would never be as much fun. Bob, it gets a whole lot more complicated when you have kids. Charlotte, it's scary. Bob, the most terrifying day of your life is the day the first one is born. Charlotte, nobody ever tells you that. Bob, your life as you know it is gone, never to return. But they learn how to walk, and they learn how to talk, and you want to be with them, and then they turn out to be the most delightful people you'll ever meet in your life. Charlotte, that's nice. Bob, for relaxing times, make it Centauri time. Charlotte, I just don't know what I'm supposed to be. Bob, you'll figure that out. The more you know who you are and what you want, the less you th let things like that upset you. Charlotte, 25 years, that's a, uh, well, it's impressive. Bob, 
Well, you figure you sleep one-third of your life, so that knocks out eight years of marriage right there. So you uh, know down to 16 and change, uh, you know, you're just a teenager at marriage. You get, you can drive, and but still the occasional accident. Charlotte, I just feel so alone, even when I'm surrounded by other people. Charlotte, I tried taking pictures, but they were so mediocre. I guess every girl goes through a photography phase. You know, horses, taking pictures of your feet. Charlotte, making fun of his of Bob's one-night stand. Well, she is closer to your age. You could talk about things you have in common, like growing up in the 50s. Maybe she liked the movies you were making in the 70s when you were still making movies. Bob, wasn't there anyone else to lavish you with attention? Stills photographer. You know 007? Bob, he drinks martinis, but okay, I got it. At the photo shoot? Bob, you want more mysterious? I'll just try and think, where the hell's the whiskey? Any remaining for either of you? I'm out. Bob at the photo shoot. Am I drinking? Yeah, as soon as I'm done. All right, I'm out too. I got one last one. Roger Moore? I I think of, uh, I always think of Sean Connery. Nah, nah, Roger Moore. All right, we ready for the Stanley rubric then? Yes. All right. Legacy is up first. Dad, do you want to go first or second here? I'll go off. I I tried to think about this and what impact it really had. Other than the fact that I think it kind of helped launch ScarJo's career to some extent. I mean, she had done one film before, but I think this kind of put her on the spotlight of more films. So I give it for the industry a little bump up, but... I think to some extent this film's kind of lost within the industry. It's not really looked at in great regards, although I think it's underappreciated. So I went with a 2.5 for the industry. And for the public, you know, I, as I go through the week, and it's I know it's a weird barometer, but I'll mention the film we're going to do to the people that I associate with and talk to. And... Uh, you get kind of either a reaction of, oh, I think I remember that, or, yeah, I like that, but I haven't seen it in, like, 20 years. I think it's kind of lost steam, unfortunately. So the public, I went with a 1.5 for a um, uh, 4 overall. So Legacy... For the industry, you know, I think I'm going to surprise you guys a little bit with this because I just kind of been tracing the roots a little bit. I found this to be incredibly impactful over the years uh, with Legacy. If we look at Bill Murray kind of returning to, or not returning to, but kind of being introduced to prestige and how he's looked at from beyond that, turning uh, Sofia Coppola, who many remember as the uh, eyesore that's in Godfather 3, as an actress, uh, turning her into a, a respected director. And then, you know, uh, Dana, you mentioned introducing ScarJo to the world, but also the fact that a, that a little indie movie like this can make such a, a dent in the world. And now we have A24 today 
And this is kind of like A24 before A24 was there. And I think Sophie Coppola even did an A24 movie with Bill Murray uh, on the rocks uh, a couple of years ago. Also, the other area is the female director. I mean, up until this point, there had only been two female directors who were up for best director, uh, Jane Champion for The Piano. And then the first one was in the 70s. I don't have the name in the movie in front of me, but she's the third one. And since there, there's been a great string of female uh, directors kind of introduced. So I think in an odd way, though, we there is definitely elements of this movie that have kind of been forgotten the sense of forefronts of movies that we remember from this era. But I think there's little blueprints of this that have really kind of led a bit. So I went five for the industry. Now with the audience, I'm a little harsher because I don't think this is a movie that people are talking about on the regular. I mean, it is on streaming on Peacock as we were recording this, but um, I, I went uh, I went 2.5 because I, I do think there's the Bill Murray consciousness This kind of bumped it up a little bit, took him out of the early 90s and 80s and put him back into the 2000s and, you know, made uh, Zombieland, made that joke kind of even work a little better. So I, I went 2.5 audience and five for the industry. For 7.5? Hold on. You made some good points. I'm going to go with, I'm going to increase my industry by one point. So I'll go from uh, 2.5 to 3.5 based on some of the comments with regard to the female directors you made. So I'll, I'll agree with you. It wasn't something that I readily thought of. I knew it was a mistake letting you go ahead of me because you made like two or three of the same points I was going to do. <laughs> Particularly, I'm I'm mad that you made the Godfather Three Resurrection ahead of me because I'm like, yep, damn it! I thought I'd get my joke in there, and nope, nope, stolen right from under me. But I think, as far as Bill Murray, it has made him more acceptable as not just a comedian. I think, in the same way that like Will Ferrell being a producer on things has kind of given him some more gravitas going forward as not just kind of the way that Hollywood kind of sloughs off Adam Sandler in a way. And even he's kind of resurrected himself. He started to do some serious parts, particularly uncut gems. And then he did, I can't remember the basketball movie from last year, but similarly kind of has started to get his due and how Jim Carrey finally went and stopped being the kind of slapstick guy and became kind of more of the straight man in the mid two thousands, particularly working on the movie you mentioned earlier, Eternal Sunshine, and things of that nature. So kind of where they make that turn to a slightly more layered character, you know that they still have the comedic chops, and clearly Murray is able to bring that forward in this, because there are some really funny moments in this, and I was surprised at how much I thought this was a funny movie. But that being said, ScarJo, just on her star power alone, if you say that this is kind of the movie that put her really in front of people, I would argue that there was a movie from a couple of years prior, and the name escapes me, where she got some level of notoriety, but she Wheel was kind of the... Something. No, no. Was that it The was Island, a... or is The Island after this? No, it was a... Um, uh, you're going to make me look it up, aren't you? That's why we have Google machines. Yeah, I know. Ghost World. Ghost World? Yeah, from 2001, which had some Oscar-nominated pieces to it. It's a movie that we discussed in my film discussion group in Madison a few months back. But that's a much younger-seeming version of her while she's, at that time, 16. 
and there does seem to be a big gap between that 16-year-old version and this 18-year-old version. Yes, I know, it was weird for me thinking, she's only 18 in this movie? And I think she's acting like she's 23? It was weird. But even so, it's believable. As far yeah, been as married concerned. for two years. Exactly. But also, I think there is a prestige to Sofia Coppola, and I know it was a joke to say it's a resurrection, but it kind of was. I mean, she's Hollywood royalty that probably nobody gave the time of day until she made this movie. And in a way, it's kind of her Citizen Kane. Everything that comes after it for her gets put through the rose-colored glasses of, you made this movie that everybody loved. And I don't think she's ever quite gotten to the same level of success that she had with this movie. But there are a lot of critics and industry people that still give her a certain level of appreciation for having made this movie. So I honestly put it at a 4.5 for the industry. I, I won't go to a full five because I, I don't think it's like peak industry fodder. Like everybody in town kind of knows who this is and gives them all the credit in the world because they made that one movie that one time. You, you kind of have to do a little bit more, at least in my eyes, than make one indie movie. You kind of back it up with something a little bit bigger like I don't know, go on and produce one of the highest grossing movies of all time type of thing or some weird thing where you had another big project on top of it or your indie movie isn't just surprising, but you follow it up with another one that is even bigger. It's not even to the level of what like Get Out as an indie movie became. That that was like an overnight sensation type of thing, even within the industry and won a whole mess more of awards. But I do think this has downward effects on top of that. So I went with a 4.5 on that side of it. I went with a 3 for the public because I agree with most of the points that have already been made. I don't think this is one that sticks in the mind. If we do this discussion 10 years out from even now, I wonder how many people are still going to have this memory of the movie. I mean, it is a little bit for our generation, especially as we grew up with Bill Murray and taking notice of him being in a serious role. There is kind of a delineation as to what his first real serious role was. But I also feel that, especially day by day, I feel separated from an entire portion of the country that has no idea of a Bill Murray that isn't Ghostbusters or Stripes or Meatballs, maybe even. You know, if, if you really want to go to the deep cuts. His first dramatic role was playing a character that was loosely based on a New York columnist, Mike Royko. It was called The Razor's Edge. It was done after he did Stripes, and he cut a deal with the studio that said, I'll do Ghostbusters if I can do this serious film that I'll produce. It did not get good reviews. Is he a Tootsie? He was in Tootsie also? He was in Yeah, Tootsie, but he was yes. a side character. Yeah. And that's still a fairly funny movie. Mm. Yes. Got to shout out uh I got to shout out what about Bob too. That was another one that was on all the time, all the time. I was him and Richard Dreyfus driving drip, Richard Dreyfus up a wall. I don't know how one of them didn't kill the other. <laughs> yeah, they did not get along during the filming at all. No. Seems like Richard Dreyfus didn't get along with anybody ever. That was the phase of Bill Murray's career where he even was estranged from Harold Ramis about the same time for Groundhog Day. Mm -hmm. Yes. So he was kind of at the peak of him being kind of an entitled superstar. 
All right, so to circle back, I matched your 7.5, Kieran, with my own, and that gives us a 6.67 average between the three of us for Legacy. Impact significance, I don't think this is all that much different because we're only 20 years out. I do think that this was higher regarded as well in the industry at the time. It was award-supported, although this is still the time where we had kind of the Weinstein effect of independent movies kind of breaking through and getting a little bit more awards attention in and amongst the major films. While those were cleaning up, obviously this being the year of Lord of the Rings and it finally getting its Oscars and basically sweeping most of that Oscars. The fact that it got a writing credit and a win, I think is significant in, in amongst itself. And the critic reviews were almost universally positive. So I'm going to go with a 4.5 again there. As far as impact significance on the audience, it's a $4 million movie that made 11 times its budget, which is good, but it ranked 93rd for the year as far as the box office returns. I think people might know it by name, but how many people are really seeing it if it's the 93rd movie this year? Just a couple of examples of some things that finished ahead of it. Final Destination 2, Agent Cody Banks, Radio, Just Married, Gothica, Bad Santa, Mona Lisa Smile, Kangaroo Jack, The Haunted Mansion. I mean, this was not like a high-grossing movie. It was just a good movie in and amongst a lot of crap. But again, this is in the age where blockbuster was huge and video rental was big i guarantee you this was not a highly rented movie no it wasn't highly rented but for those who had a certain element how do i don't want to sound but for certain a certain class of people a certain group this was something that resonated more and within certain spheres people talked about it Again, it's the silos of America. I know. I got to throw out, too, though. I mean, yeah, it was 44 domestic, but it grossed 74 international, you know, and was 118 worldwide. 118 worldwide for a little movie like that is pretty pretty good. I mean, I I know I watched it on VOD back when, so that's kind of the dawn of when you could just, you know, take out your remote and and start, you know, saying, all right, I'll, I'll pay 10 bucks for this movie. Yeah, I, I think that the Bill Murray factor gave it a little buzz. So um, I was a little kinder. What did, what did Gray did you end up with with the audience? I'm sorry, I don't know. It was a three, so I ended up at a 7.5. But I found some actual discrepancy. Like, I saw the number on Wikipedia or whatever was $118 million. But if you look at the uh, box office mojo, international gross, it was only $14 million. The domestic was only 30.9. So 48.4.5 is the supposed total according to them. So I'm not sure which number bears out, to be quite honest. Because I th- I looked at the $118 million or whatever it was, and I'm like, oh, this movie did a lot better than I thought it would for something that was made for $4 million. This is I, I'm not sure what to think about this movie I- as far as uh, how much it actually made. Well, as far as grading industry, I gave it a 4 because of the Academy and the actual win for the screenplay and what was going on, and critics and such. 
the public, I went with a 3.5, so I went with a 7, 7.5 overall. Uh, for me, Tom, I'm going to match your 4.5 for a lot of the reasons that you said. I'll throw on the fact that the uh, Sofia Coppola being nominated, the female director, that was the buzz there, and, and Bill Murray at the Oscars. Um, so yeah, 4.5 there. And uh, I just went a 3.5 with the audience because I think a lot of people wanted to see what was going on with Bill Murray here and see him in this type of role. And there was definitely a buzz about it. I mean, it, found, it got to me as a 19-year-old college student. And yeah, it seemed like a, a worldwide type of success. So I went a 4.5 and a 3.5 for a total of an 8. By the way, you had to ruin my average there right at the end. We had two 7.5s. You were giving me a 4.5. I'm like, all right, make the math easy. No. <laughs> so the average between the three of us will be a 7.67. Novelty for this one. I already mentioned that this is kind of a small but beautiful movie, and it's grown on me a lot more as I've kind of sat and appreciated it post-watch. In a way, I don't think this is particularly novel in its premise. I think this is much more of an execution movie. I actually thought a lot about a movie that originally when we were recording this was uh, appearing over my father's shoulder, and that's... uh, Roman Holiday reminds me a lot of what this movie was 50 years prior. Yeah, good call. It has some elements of that, and that is a leading Hollywood script of the time. But that being said, I mean, this does its own work. I think it's a different movie. And while it borrows elements of that, I think it updates what the relationship is. It makes a much more stark contrast between its two leads while I think that an argument could be made for the difference in age, particularly given that your starlet was 18 and Bill Murray was probably in his mid to late 50s at the time. 50, yeah, 51, I think. Okay. All right. So even younger than I thought, but still, I mean, there's a f- fairly significant age gap that if you didn't handle it appropriately, I think that this film could have really been tagged for. But it really wasn't there. I mean, we mentioned the scene with the jazz singer, whatever else to alleviate some of the sexual tension. I also comment on another scene where they go to the strip club and both of them want to get out of there almost immediately for how awkward it is for them. And yes, that is a a bit of a commentary on the Japanese culture, but I think it's also a commentary on them. This relationship isn't defined by the sexual nature of it, as opposed to the intimacy as dad mentioned before. So for me, it's not the most novel. I can make an argument that it's at least decently novel, but I think the execution raises it for me to a 7.5. I think we're pretty much on the same page there. I think if some of the the novelty to it to me, because like you said, I don't think they were necessarily inventing anything too new here. I I do think it is a bit of a timeless tale as far as what uh, those two have. I do think there's an element of that A24 before A24 was there and kind of establishing that we can tell this kind of story on the main stage. And also uh, the reclaiming of the 80s comedian and turning him into a dramatic actor. You talked about that a little in the last category. But, you know, we have Michael Keaton coming a little bit after this, probably about a decade after this, but also The Wrestler with Mickey Rourke, too. But I, I had it in at a uh, at a seven here for this one. I'm going to go above both of you. I have it as a nine. 
Yeah, there are elements that, you know, there's, it's a romantic comedy in, in essence. But what this did was it stripped off the veneer, the superficial aspect of the romantic comedy and got down to the baser elements of what it, what it is, what makes a romantic comedy or what really does, which is the intimacy, the relationship, and takes out the entire aspect of sex from the film. It's not about jumping in bed with somebody. It's about building an emotional connection with them instead, which I found unique, and I could not think of another film that did that. Now, the context is not unique, so therefore I can't give it a perfect 10, but I certainly would feel uncomfortable with my 9 because it presented the concept in a completely different and fresh way. There is one movie that does come to mind for me, but it's probably one you haven't seen. It's a little lesser known unless you're kind of like a movie file type like we are. And the relationship is flipped. And that'd be Harold and Maude. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. You know, Dana, you, you said that I talked you up before and, you know, I'm, I'm going to match you here and, and say that you talked me up a bit on this one. And I think it'll make it'll help the math, too. So I'm going to I'm going to go to Tom 7.5 with mine. As you talk. That was very well said. He talked me up a 0.5. So. Except I was going to go to an eight. <laughs> All right. Well, the math, the math can suffer, though. You know, I... yes. <laughs> no, that's fine. I, I can do the quick math here. So always have your handy dandy calculator. It's an 8.17. Classicness, Dad, I'll hand it over to you. We have a fairly strong female lead. We have a male, but the one thing he does that's not really kosher in today's society is he has a one-night fling, but then he's embarrassed about it and is contrite about it. It was consensual, so I don't really give it any points off for that. I had a hard time finding anything. The only thing I could give it down on was that I think it kind of overdid the... uh, the Japanese cultural differences. I think at one point while we were watching it, because we watched it together actually for a change was you commented, what? There isn't one person who speaks English in the uh, Tokyo Hilton. I think it's the Tokyo Hyatt, but even so, I mean, this was 2003. It's not like it's 1953. Yeah, I know. And I mean, during this time frame, my cousin, uh, had married a Vietnamese American and was living in Tokyo at the time because he was stationed over there, placed over there by his company doing import-export. And she would put stuff on Facebook all the time about the cultural differences. But even then, she had a group of American friends and Japanese nationals who had been exchange students who spoke English. So I don't think it's quite as diverse as it was portrayed. So I went with a nine for that reason. Yeah, I hit this one up a little bit here. I think the running Asian jokes and this, I don't know at least where we're at today. I I don't know that that fly. I feel like that's something maybe she would go back and smooth over a little bit. The L's and R's stuff and having that kind of be a, that running joke get maybe only really 
in 2023 works in like a South Park episode. I feel like that's a that kind of runs into a little bit of a problem there. Um, I could see people still kind of being a little weary about the age difference situation there. You know, even though that the kind of age gap, not maybe not that dramatic of an age gap, but those sorts of age gaps exist and have existed for decades upon centuries and, and whatnot. But I, I think that that's still in the mind of cinema is hurt. So I give it a six on this one for that. Well, if we apply my normal baseline seven, I think there could be some arguments made or some hits against this as we've kind of mentioned, but I think at least for now, they're still minor. I think that a lot of this is still told through the experience of Americans experiencing Japan as opposed to what it actually is. And some of it's a heightened experience comparatively. So some of that is staged clearly and some of it's for comedic effect. So maybe that might be a little bit cute here and there, but at most I think between that and there might be an argument for the December May type of relationship that's in this. But even that I just don't find to be anything more than kind of intimate and innocent. So I'm not sure I would even hold that against it. And especially in a modern culture where, I mean, there are advanced ages marrying well below decades below themselves at this point. I mean, who am I to judge if you're consenting adults? I think the only issue I might have is whether or not ScarJo was uncomfortable with any of it. And I don't think that she was in the making of the movie just because she was just 18. But outside of that, I really don't have too many other issues. And this is just on the border where it's starting to kind of grasp into the timeless category. I will say that a movie that has a universality to it usually bumps me up an extra point when we get a movie that seemingly can touch other people in a fairly common way. And I think this movie has one of those qualities for me. So I went with an eight, which is just slightly ahead of the baseline. I think this is a movie that may come down in subsequent years. And I hope this isn't, and you know, we don't revisit this in 10, 15 years and say, oh, this is kind of verging on breakfast at Tiffany's or something all of a sudden. But (laughs) that would ruin what I think is actually a fairly good film. But I could see where the arguments could be made one way or the other. Well, breakfast with Tiffany, you just take out Mickey Rooney and it's a good film. Well, since I've never actually seen the full movie, I don't know how integral he is to that entire movie. You could take him out and it wouldn't hurt it. But then again, you still have to tell it as part of the story because wasn't he Oscar nominated for that? Yeah. He may have even won now that I think about it. He might have. Rewatchability, I'll just make this one fairly simple. It's not going to be one of my favorite films, but this is a short, sweet movie that's 90 minutes, so that already bumps it up slightly in my estimation. Love ScarJo, and I love this time in my life with appreciating ScarJo. Uh, I feel like there's more for me to get out of this, so I could very easily see myself rewatching this in about a year or so and you know, getting a good reminder of everything that we kind of went through with this. I'm going to go with a 7.5. So rewatchability, this is kind of complicated for me. I mean, the last 
time I was on, I kind of said I look at rewatchability like two things. One, is it one I'm going to want to put on? And two, is it one that am I going to want to leave it on once it's on? Now, with this movie, I actually think that this movie, you need some time in between viewings. I think this is the type of movie that is great to revisit at different periods in your life. You know, when you're young, when you're kind of transitioning into a new, a new part of your life, when you haven't seen it in a decade, it's going to hit you a completely different way. So I think you're doing yourself a disservice if you watch this every year. I think there should be some gaps in between it. How does that grade out in terms of rewatchability? I'm not quite sure. So um, I, I like kind of like the baseline idea of the seven in the sense that, you know, this isn't Ghostbusters. You don't throw it on every day because you love Bill Murray. But, you know, you guys did that wonderful episode on 12 Years a Slave, which is one that is like kind of like, you know, like you said, I think you brought up Schindler's List in that uh, episode, too, about one that's certainly not like one you're going to put on to cheer up your day. And it needs distance in between viewings because there's only so many times you can go through that. But you do know what you're going to get with those types of movies. You you know what you're you have expectations for 12 Years a Slave. You may pick up a couple different things, but you know the the trip and the journey you're going to go on. I don't think you're always going to know the journey you're going to go on with this movie. I think this movie is going to surprise you and surprise some things about yourself in different ways with it. So it needs to be rewatched, but it needs distance in between. Those. So I'll go with the baseline um, set. We'll go 7.5 to give it a little extra charm. For me, you know, it's uh, I don't readily talk about this, but there are certain periods or times in my life where I do things. You know, for instance, if I'm having a difficult time and I see that there's a lot of people fighting or there's a lot of chaos in the world, I'll just go to the Art Institute of Chicago's website and just look at paintings of Monet and, and Renoir. Or if I'm having difficulty focusing on where I'm going with something, like in my career or my life, pulling up Robert Frost's The Road Less Taken and read the poem. This is a film that I think when I'm feeling lonely and um, having difficulties in, in processing or having the alienation that I think a lot of middle-aged people feel because it's hard to make friends at this point in your life and a lot of your friends move away or become involved with other aspects of their life or, quite frankly, die. I'm getting to the point where I'm going to be starting to lose friends to cancer and heart disease and etc. This is a film that I think I need to put on and consider during those times of contemplation of what relationships are and how to think about intimacy and gain something from watching it. So it's going to be a regular for me for that reason. Normally a seven is one that I'll rewatch. I'm going to go with an eight for that reason because I think this Having watched it again, and where I am at this point in my life, and I, again, the you know it's a very subjective statement because you're talking about it, not just you individually, but where you are at this point in life, and you know, and coming out of a pandemic and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I'm going to go with an eight for it, and that will make the math easy because this is the third time now we've had a seven point six seven average between the three of us. So for audience score, we have a 87 for Google users and an 85 for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.6. So to repeat the categories, we had a 6.67 for Legacy, 
a 7.67 for impact significance, an 8.17 for novelty, a 7.67 for classicness, a 7.67 for rewatchability, and an 8.6 for audience score, giving us a final total of... 46.45. And that will place it on our list between Iron Man and Caddyshack. <laughs> wow. Can't make this stuff up, folks. <laughs> Last yeah. time I was on with uh, with Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, we had two Paul Newman movies married to each other there with that and Slapshot. And here we are with two Bill Murrays there. And it you needed to have the Marvel there just to stick the uh stick the <laughs> the the shiv in the side of me and Dana there. I like that. Oh well. So remaining questions, we already asked one that obviously we can't answer, but what does Bob say to Charlotte at the end? The next one I had down, does Charlotte try to kiss Bob in the elevator? I mean, I rewound it for both of us when we were watching it the other night. And I think she does really try and make the move, whereas he seems really intent on trying to do the cheek kiss because he wants this to remain somewhat innocent. Yeah, I I think that's a good read. And there's some clear jealousy a little bit there when she realizes the one night stand. I I definitely think that she was a go in this one, Um, but uh, he he definitely kept kept that barrier there. Yes, I, I, I think in retrospect there was, because I think she, and I hate to put it this way, but I mean, there's certain people that sometimes confuse intimacy and sexuality. Particularly someone of that age, you know, she's confused about a lot of things, I'm sure. Okay, do either of you have remaining questions? I mean, I think another kind of more general one is do... Do either of the marriages or both of the marriages last? To me, I think uh, Bob goes back to his wife and says, look, you know, it's it's to a point where I, I feel like I'm not connected with you anymore. And, um, you know, this has got to change or else we need to change the marriage. I think that is kind of where he is. He, I think, has now got the motivation or the ability to confront that i don't think he really wanted to because you know the thought is is that you'll end up being alone if you break the relationship of 25 years whereas i think this empowered him to some extent for her i i don't see anything i can't even figure out why they were together i i think i think the divorce papers will be filed um, by the time they hit the ground in, in Los Angeles again. But my remaining question is tied to that. They built this whole relationship and they're both living in Los Angeles. Do they meet again? Well, yeah. Why would you not? Just because you're, you've built the relationship in Tokyo and you have this unique situation, why you wouldn't continue to have it when you go back home? We're about a year away from Facebook being invented, too. So um, social media might connect them in a couple of years. Um, yeah, I, I kind of viewed uh, a little bit opposite with you. I'm, I'm with you on ScarJo. I think the divorce papers are filed as they land in, in L.A. I'm with you there. I, I think I think this is a bit of a release for Bill Murray. And I think he goes back 
to his burg- burgundy carpeting and new shelves. And I think he he reconnects with his family after this one, personally. I don't know that I'm right, but that's what I you know that's what what I took out of it this this viewing. What do we define as lasting? Tell the actual death do us part. Do 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 these marriages end in divorce? Uh, that's I'll word it that way. I think one does and one doesn't. Maybe this is the cynical point of view for me, but they're both Hollywood connected. I just assume that that is the the end point for all Hollywood connected marriages. Fair point. Because we have so many examples. There are not very many that actually, quote unquote, last to a death do us part scenario. And that's why it's remarkable when you do have one or two. Yeah. Paul Newman and, and uh, Joanne Woodward. Joanne Woodward. Or what was it? Uh, Anne Bancroft and uh, Mel, Mel Brooks. Brooks. Although Anne Bancroft was divorced when she married Mel Brooks. Okay, but, you know, Still. I mean, we, we can't always hold the uh, weakest moments of our lives against everyone, even if they are in the spotlight. James Stewart and, and I'm drawing a blank as to his wife's name, that type of situation. But one thing I thought of is, is all those those carpet swatches, and I really like the burgundy. And he's like, which the which one is the fucking burgundy? <laughs> and I'm thinking back to the red swatches for the wall in our house, where your mother kept bringing out red swatches, and I like I can't tell the difference. Where your kids are all sitting at the breakfast table, and she says, "Just a minute, I got some new swatches." And I said, "I can't tell the difference." So whatever she shows me, I'm picking the middle one. And so she brings out and puts it down. And I pick. I like that one. And she goes, "I do too." And you guys bust out laughing. And she's like, "What's wrong? What's going on? Why are you laughing?" Nothing says marriage more than swatches. Which reminds me of the. Uh... Parks and Recreation episode where they bring out the six shades of black <laughs> and they laugh at Jerry for thinking they're all just black. Uh, one last remaining question for me in that famous golf shot of him teeing off there. Does Bob play that whole hole? Does he play the entire hole with just his driver? I mean, that's walks, a good point. He walks directly towards his ball with no cart no bag no caddy in sight is he is he chipping with the driver and putting with the driver the whole way through i don't know see and this is a missed opportunity if you did that section of the movie over again and uh, you had the budget for it and could stomach him for the the six hours that you'd probably need you have chevy chase caddy for him (laughs) i love it i love it yeah great shot great shot oh he's a decent golfer yo big time golfer yeah well, my old uh, high school teacher, who was almost a professional golfer, uh, he was in the same class at Beloit Memorial that Andy North was at Madison West. So they competed against each other all the time. But Steve Furter was in a tournament and um, it just duffed and had a, like an eight on his first hole. And he got so frustrated, he uh, pulled out his putter and he played the entire remaining 17 holes with his putter. He drove with his putter. He chipped with his putter. He just used the putter. That's great. My remaining question feels kind of insignificant now since we already mentioned the L.A. portion of things. But what would have actually happened had they both stayed? There's a part of me that says it would be ruined the longer on that they would would have been with each other, especially when the reality of the stakes 
kind of sets in, especially because they're away from their reality and their responsibilities and the normal day-to-day aspect of their lives. They're in this kind of honeymoon period. And so I do think that the movie naturally has to end that way, especially for the person seen with the more experience and maturity being the one to leave. I love the connection you made with Roman Holiday. I, I'm mad I didn't think about that because they're, they're definitely spot on companion pieces. And it's it's kind of similar there, too. It's like that that little moment together is something that will last a lifetime. If it goes on too long, maybe the indelibility of that will, will fade. So yeah, it, uh, that's, that's a good point. Well, thank you for being on with us, Kieran. Where can people find your work and keep up to date with you? They can find me at Best Picture Cast, just how it sounds, Best Picture Cast. We're on all the podcast platforms. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. You know, when you reach out to me, you're reaching out to me. I'm running the account. So if you have any questions or comments to, to send to me specifically, don't be shy. We go through the Best Picture winners. We go through them one by one. And we just did uh, Out of Africa with uh, Meryl Streep and Robert Redford. Just covered that one. We'll... Uh, be covering a patent, which I think is a favorite of your guys. We got that one coming up. We haven't recorded that yet. I think we're recording That's that uh, the, the 5th of July. We're going to record that one. So okay. a patriotic experience there. And we're heading to the end of our, our fourth season, which is every season's 15 movies. And we get to the end of the 15, we rank them all. So uh, yeah, check us out there and and all that. And we, we love to hear from new people. And uh, we have long form episodes. They're, they're lengthy and you can really kind of digest each movie we live in them. So uh, please check us out. Best picture cast. Yeah. And you just released one on Rain Man with another celebrity guest scorer of ours and Adam Hitchcock, fellow friend of the show. Yes. Yeah. That was our, our revisited uh, episode there where we kind of, it's our third ever episode. We, three years ago, we were, didn't know what we were doing. We started things up. So we're kind of redoing them. And uh, Tom, I, I got you sized up for one soon too. When we get there, I'm, I, I have my eyes on you doing a Going My Way with Bing Crosby. I don't know if you've seen that film or not yet. So I have actually seen every Best Picture winner going back to 1927. Okay, I did know that. Including right. that uh, I've watched both of the original first two winners. Now, the question will be is if I ever get to the really fanatical effort of watching every Best Picture nominee. Yes. Uh, I doubt I will, but goals. Goals. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, indeed. And I think you guys covered uh, Double Indemnity recently, which which lost to Going Back. Yes, yes, we did. And uh, another great classic. But uh, yeah, that'll be a, a bit of a controversial year. I do enjoy that movie. It, it reminded me a lot of a Capra movie that wasn't done by Capra. Mm, mm, kind of the yeah. sentimentality of it and the community and uh, the tone. It, it kind of matched that. So it'll be an interesting one to discuss. I'd be glad to be on for that one. Cool. Excellent. I'm available. Dana, hey, I would love to have you on too. Tell me when. It won't be for a Marvel movie, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so I think he'll be okay with that. Yeah, that's that's fine. So by the way, Tom's wearing one of our hats. Three more, and you become in the uh, five timers club and you get a hat. That's my goal. I think you guys have me uh you have me in your sights for a third episode and you know um, I'll be two away at that point then. I'm, so I'm, I'm working working for the hat. Yep, my wife got the hats made up and uh, took the logo and went and put them on a black hat. They look pretty cool, I think. I mean, I actually Fantastic. quite pleased. She, of course, made herself a shirt. 
because she doesn't look good in hats. Well, it, well, I think she looks better in hats than she gives herself credit for, but that's another It messes situation. up her hair. But uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, I know which one you should have Dana on for. Shakespeare in Love. <laughs> he doesn't oh, like Shakespeare in Love, huh? No. He likes, or he hates it more for what it represents than the movie itself. The screwing of, save, or of Saving Private Ryan. Well, that, see, now I did that one with my brother, and he is a a firm believer that Shakespeare in Love was the deserving winner that year. So <laughs> I actually yeah. like the film, but it, it, yeah, it, I like it, too, it creates but... a stir that's kind of undeserved. It's not better than, than saying Pratt Ryan. We did an episode a couple of years back because there was a certain nostalgia for it. And it kind of got brought back around by the Fablemans this last year with the greatest show on earth. That'd be a good one for him to do because uh, we didn't have a lot to say at the time. Maybe a rewatch might uh, loosen up the lips here for you. Oh, Bob. boy. We just covered that one, and I'm going to need some time on that one. I, I yeah. Tell you. <laughs> when I was a kid, I loved it. Then I watched it again, and I'm like, why did I like this? Caught up in the moment. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Tell me, Inspector, Senor Phantom, all those robberies, how did you ever manage it? Well, you know, it wasn't easy. Next week, for its 70th anniversary, we are discussing the caper comedy, The Pink Panther from 1963, written and directed by Blake Edwards, co-written with Maurice Richland, music by Henry Mancini, starring Peter Sellers, David Niven, and Robert Wagner. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronniedunkinstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. <laughs>